Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thank you so much for joining me. Today's interview guest is Lori Lindsay on the NWSL Challenge Cup, her story and her role on the board of U.S. Soccer. We've had some great interview guests lately, including Jurgen Klopp, Josie Altidore, and Andres Cantor, among many others. So check those interviews out. It would be absolutely huge for this podcast growth if you could subscribe, recommend us to your friends, and take just a little bit of time to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. We'll have Lori Lindsay on soon here with plenty of NWSL talk, but let's start with some talk about the soccer news with my friend Chris Whittingham, who co-hosts the Chelsea Miked Up podcast, which you should definitely check out. Chris, thanks for joining me. Happy to do it, Grant. We just got done watching Arsenal with a 2-1 to victory over Liverpool at the Emirates. Liverpool cannot get to 100 points now. Not sure if that matters for them. But just a very uncharacteristic Liverpool performance. Two huge screw-ups in the back today basically sank them. Agreed. And when you watch the first 20 minutes of the game, it looked like Arsenal at their very Arsenal worst, (laughs) trying to play out from the back. There was one moment where Granit Xhaka gave the ball away like 10 yards from his own box. And you can see the body language that he wanted to quit and give up. And then he like found some reservoir of energy where he got up. And if you'd said at that moment, is Arsenal going to get anything from this game? You would have said no, but they found it. You mentioned a couple of defensive mistakes. Alisson with a dreadful pass out Mm -hmm. uh, that leads uh, to the Nelson goal. But uh, for Arsenal, a a lifeline in trying to get into the European places when I I actually thought going into the game that maybe Mikel Arteta was, was, uh, prioritizing the FA Cup because Aubameyang didn't start. So maybe he's like, all right, I'm going to throw everything into the FA Cup to try and get into the Europa League. And then all of a sudden you beat the champions at home. But yeah, for Liverpool, I mean, it's pretty clear that they've downed tools and they're not, you know, the same team. I just kind of wonder, this season for them could have been best Premier League team ever if they had gotten over 100 points, which they had a great chance to do. If maybe they'd given a bit more of an effort in the FA Cup, if, you know, they had not gone out in the round of 16 in the Champions League. And now it obviously is remembered as Liverpool's, you know, first Premier League title in 30 years, but they had the chance to be an all-time team. And while they will remain one, I don't know if it'll be quite the same that you don't set any records and you don't win multiple trophies. It's just a Premier League winning team. Yeah, a couple things I would say. One, down tools is one of my favorite expressions in the (laughs) soccer universe. Just wanted to throw that out there. So thank you for bringing that up. Also, the we talked about body language. When Liverpool got the first goal in this game, it was like the most striking example of like half a dozen Arsenal players just doing like the little post-goal tantrum thing that you yeah. see. Like, And, and you're just like, this game isn't going to be a game that Arsenal <laughs> gets anything out of. So like for them to actually win the game despite being dominated for the most part i'll give arsenal some credit for that a little disappointing to me to see liverpool not playing the way we've seen them play all season down the stretch here but it also puts in perspective how good they were for how long they were and i hope people look at it in those terms of just what liverpool did for the majority of this season until basically the Watford game is something that we may never see again. I just in terms of absolute domination and just ridiculous performances week after week. And, and I guess you could say they weren't like totally dominant week after week, but to get the result, to get three points basically every time out, that's what I'll remember from this season the most about Liverpool. 
their feeling was they were inevitable, that no matter what the situation was, they're 1-0 down at Aston Villa with seven minutes to play in the 90, and they get a victory. Like that, They just ground out so many victories that they felt that they were never going to lose. And I still think, prior to locking up the title, you mentioned the Watford defeat, but prior to locking up the title, it's the most dominant team in the history of the Premier League because even Manchester City, when they won going away, there were times where they looked vulnerable. There were times where, you know, it looked like they could drop points. It just never felt like Liverpool was going to, and it's why I'm a little disappointed. Look, I get it. They probably went drinking for three straight days after winning, (laughs) after locking the thing up, and they still had seven games to play. Like, it doesn't lessen the achievement, but in the history books, in, you know, the greater context, it is a Liverpool title-winning team which has its historical significance, but it's not the same that it could have been if they really had been, you know, pedal to the metal for the entire season. True. Now, before we get to the fight for the last, probably, you know, the third and fourth spots for Champions League for next season in England, there was a big decision earlier this week that has an impact on that because Man City's punishment of a two-year ban from the Champions League was overturned by the Court of Arbitration for Sport. So that means that City will get a spot in Champions League for next season. It also means that predictions of doom and gloom that this would break up City and all those things not going to happen. What was your initial thought on this decision by CAS? I was a little bit surprised at the very quick takes of, well, the whole system doesn't work and Man City got away with it because we don't know the details of what happened here. And look, I'm not expecting soccer fans to read amicus briefs, but at the same time, we don't know what the court found. And we kind of saw one page that it was about statute of limitations, that it was about UEFA not proving their case. But I would like to know the extent to which they didn't prove their case. Was the obstruction that City were found guilty of the reason why the case couldn't be proven or why it couldn't be proven in a timely manner? So I think it's hard to, to come up with a judgment about what this means in a broader context. But you're right, as a relates the near term for Manchester City first off I think you're seeing from Pep Guardiola a defiance and going after the press and going after his opponents that I wasn't expecting I was expecting him to kind of be like all right not that we got away with it but let's be quiet let's take this with grace and move on but it seems like they're going to be defiant both in terms of their outward words and probably the money they're going to spend this summer they're probably going to go crazy spending money to shore up their squad again and in the near term it you're right it saves Manchester City from you know maybe a flock of players leaving from their standing in in world football dropping significantly because if they don't have Champions League football to offer for two years, that would have been a huge blow to that project. So I think it in the very near term, it helps them massively. It does. And I was surprised as well just with how publicly defiant Guardiola was. They're still getting a major fine here. Now, probably pocket change to the guys who own Man City, but Jose Mourinho pointed this out. Like, Either they're guilty or they're not. Either you find them and you keep the punishment or you don't. And I find myself agreeing with Jose Mourinho for the first time in a while. I I, I can never. I can never, Grant. (laughs) And like, I mean... You get the idea, but they weren't found guilty of the crimes themselves. They're found guilty of obstruction. I think a fine makes sense for that. Whereas, I mean, can you imagine if they gave a club a year Champions League ban for obstruction? That would be weird. <laughs> I don't know if that's what the rule was. I, I, yeah. I guess my my overall issue here is I actually think financial fair play has been a positive, a net positive for We've seen huge changes over the last decade as a result of FFP that the sport, which has gone from a giant deficit into a profitable situation, that's beneficial. And so, you know, with this 
case being overturned with other cases involving PSG being overturned, AC Milan, it seems like financial fair play is either not going to continue or not in the way that it's been used in the future. Now, in terms of the actual spots for Champions League, so now that Man City is in, now that Liverpool is in, that means you've got basically three teams fighting for the third and fourth spots to qualify for next season's Champions League. Chelsea currently on 63 points with two games to play in the league. Four points behind Chelsea, but with one more game to play are Leicester and Manchester United. And I know you follow Chelsea closely, you follow everything closely, but is this in the bag for Chelsea yet? Because I'm not totally certain. No, you look at the fixture list for them. It's Liverpool and Wolves to play after an FA Cup semifinal against Manchester United. And I think we've seen from Chelsea in recent times some frailties at the back. Defensively, they've given up more goals than they have in a season in more than 20 years. Since 96-97, have they given up 49 goals in a league season. So uh, we know they're liable to concede. They have difficult fixtures on the way. I I guess the question is, can either Leicester or Manchester United pull off the consistency over the final three games? Leicester is a tough run in their home with Sheffield United, Tottenham on Sunday, and then Manchester United. So there's going to be a dropping of points. I guess the fact that one of those two sides is going to drop points at some point about has it in the bag for Chelsea, but they're going to have to get one, maybe two points out of those last two games against Wolves and against Liverpool in order to really seal the deal. And so, yeah, I, I think they probably have about done it, but I don't know if their their running has been the most convincing, including the one to win against Norwich when they're playing the worst team in the league. You can't put more than one past them. I do think the ideal scenario for the last day of the season for any neutral would be for that Leicester City Man United game to mean something and for the Chelsea Wolves game to mean something at the same time because it's actually been a while since we've had the last day of the season have that much at stake. It could have been three against six and four versus five, but Wolves today dropping points to Burnley, giving up a 96-minute penalty. If they go on to win that game, Wolves would have been up to 58 points and are within striking distance of Leicester and Manchester United at that point. But man, I think that about does it for them. Sheffield United still with an outside chance, but they probably have to win out in order to get into fourth. But I think there's a real possibility that Leicester-Manchester United on the final day is for the final Champions League place, and that could be absolutely great theater. I don't know if a, if a relegation fight is going to join uh, that we'd certainly like to see that Bournemouth dropping points to Manchester City they play Everton on the final day maybe they can pull off a great escape if Watford lose a couple of matches in a row but yeah I think that fourth versus fifth is a real possibility to happen Leicester against Man United to decide that final Champions League spot a couple other quick things to address IFAB has extended the five sub rule to next season and I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. I think it changes the game in a significant way. It's, for me, the biggest takeaway from MLS is back. I know we're going to get to that. But you've seen a couple of games completely turn. I think of the Toronto FC-DC United match where Toronto are cruising their 2-0 up. And even though DC are down to 10 men, you can basically bring on a line change. You got five players with fresh legs that aren't going to be as affected by being down to 10 men, and they pull off a comeback. I think we've seen a lot of games just completely change after 65, 70 minutes all over the world with the five changes. And I don't know if I like the manner in which it changes because it makes it difficult to really have a feel for which of these two teams is better on the day. It helps the bigger teams because they have more depth and it just allows for, well, a manager got it wrong. He can make five changes and fix it within a game. I don't know if that's necessarily the best indicator 
of which is the better team on the day. So I think it kind of too significantly changes the game. And I think it shows that maybe some of the things that we're seeing because of this COVID break and because of what's going on with, with the closed door games and, and the, the quick succession of games could lead to some permanent changes. And I don't know if I like the idea of there being hydration breaks and five subs into the long term. I don't either. I, what I would say is, is that I would like to see a fourth sub possible for head injuries. Mm. Uh, I, I, that's the only sort of extra sub situation I would like to see added to the game. Some sort of a situation where if a player has a head injury, he needs to come out and the team should not be fundamentally punished if they've already used all their subs. That's one thing. But like in terms of the five subs, I think that's something that made sense for what we're going through right now with so many games in a short amount of time, but I just don't feel great about it for next season and continuing that. You mentioned MLS. What's standing out to you at this point? You know, like Orlando in in the final 16 is surprising to me. You know, Chicago beating Seattle and showing that they really could be a, a new fire team also surprised me. Anything on your end? I would say the, the most impressive thing that I've seen so far was the performance of Rail Salt Lake on Sunday against mm. Colorado Rapids. I just thought the way they played for 60, 75 minutes of that match, just on top of Colorado. they were Colorado have kind of been like the hipsters MLS team this year, where a right. lot of people are thinking that they have a chance to, to break through and they finished last season really well. And then Rail Salt Lake just come and wipe them off the field. And so I was really impressed by them. And really, I guess the increased drama and goal scoring uh, has been a, a welcome addition to this tournament because the first four games all went to halftime, nil-nil. Like, first half unders was starting to become a thing on, on soccer gambling Twitter. And so th- seeing that 3-3 with LAFC in Houston was incredible. LAFC with the second straight uh, 3-3 match. So I think the fact that you're starting to see, I think teams gain their sea legs a little bit, getting used to the humidity and the conditioning. And I think we'll see this tournament progress in quality because I thought those first couple of days were a little bit scary in terms of, wait a second, is the eerie silence and the players running out of gas and the humidity going to be all this tournament is? And I think between that and the fact that there were zero positive cases in the most recent round of testing have been the biggest steps forward for this tournament. Yeah, and I've been watching most of these games, uh, and they've been compelling, especially lately. So I hope that continues. I hope we end up seeing some uh, some really good soccer. Another thing for me is I just wonder if the LA Galaxy keep, keep losing and struggling with Chicharito out there that... I wonder if Guillermo Barascolotto, um might be in some trouble at some point. I know it's awfully early in the season, but certainly expectations were a lot higher out there in L.A. for that team. And, and it, they are not only losing, they're not playing very well. And I thought it was funny that Kevin Egan on his podcast had Robbie Keane today and 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 Robbie Keane talking about wanting to be the next or the LA Galaxy manager at some point. It was like for a couple of days for uh, GBS there. <laughs> and the thing that will be interesting to me is what happens when some of the bigger name coaches, because I think MLS has done really well to attract Matias Almeida, Diego Alonso, and Guillermo Barosquelotto. And I'm kind of interested in, well, what happens if they come under pressure and they should come under pressure because they're not delivering results? I think there's kind of some celebrity managers that have come into the league that almost their standing is greater than what normally is an MLS manager. Think of like Thierry Henry, for instance. Is Montreal going to get rid of Thierry Henry if results don't go right? So I, I do kind of wonder if these coaches who kind of signaled a wave of changes, if they struggle... 
then what happens? Is is New England have it right because they brought in Bruce Arena and he knows this league and he knows how to handle this league better than some of these coaches that come from abroad? Maybe that's the case, but it will be interesting to see if this trend continues how the clubs handle it because in some respects, there is this feeling like, oh, well, the, the managers not are doing favors, but are helping the league grow by bringing their standing into these clubs. I do like the greater variety in MLS coaches and more coaches coming in from outside the United States because there was this long standing rule that, oh, the American coaches were the only ones who were having success in MLS. That's changed a bit in recent years. I would say that the second Joey Saputo hired Thierry Henry, I knew that could get interesting because Joey Saputo is not going to suddenly change (laughs) and get conservative. And so if Thierry Henry doesn't win in Montreal, Joey Saputo will fire him. And so, yeah, interesting stuff. There is plenty to talk about with NWSL and its tournament, but that's going to be part of the upcoming interview with Lori Lindsay. Chris, thanks for joining me. I do have one thing that I want to bring up with you because you you brought this up on Twitter and it needs more explanation. You uh, tweeted out a picture of you 25 years ago in Buenos Aires <laughs> being there for an, a USA victory in Copa America against Argentina by three goals to nil and going to a bar. I saw someone in your mentions, and I want more details as well. Can you tell us any more about this story? Okay, so it was the 25th anniversary this week of USA 3, Argentina nil in the 1995 Copa America, which was taking place in Uruguay. And... I was a student uh, living that summer, or those three months in Buenos Aires. I ended up actually going to the Copa America semifinal with my buddies. Uh, It was uh, Brazil won USA nil uh, after uh, the U.S. had gotten through this tournament um, or gotten through the group they won with Argentina. So for this game against Argentina, huge surprise. Uh, Watched it with my buddy. We were wearing our USA jerseys, and we decided after probably having uh, a few keel mace uh, that <laughs> night, that we were going to do what all the Argentines do in Buenos Aires when there's a big soccer victory. They all go to the obelisk, the big monument in the center of town, and celebrate. Oh, no. So we decided to do that. And <laughs> um, not a great idea. Uh, so the Argentines, uh, not, not thrilled about the American guys in their American jerseys with... Actually, we had an American flag. And uh, so, yeah, fair abuse was sent our way. I still don't think it's connected. The next day, my apartment got robbed in <laughs> Buenos Aires. So uh, we went from the heights of a huge victory over Argentina. I actually kept the newspaper. Uh, like I think it was like vergüenza. Oh, you know, shame <laughs> was the, the headline the next day in Buenos Aires. But... There's some great stories. I did a podcast about that uh, tournament uh, with uh, Alexi Lalas and uh, Eric Winalda back in 2015 when we were all working for Fox at the Women's World Cup. They told some great stories about that tournament. And um, after that game, when they beat Argentina, Diego Maradona came into the U.S. locker room and told the players how proud he was of them for the way they played that night. It was a pretty amazing accomplishment. Yeah, in the uh, pre-kind of soccer having its explosion era, that's probably a result that, like, if that happens today, you're, you're, you know, it's this huge to do. But uh, you were there for it, and I was just like, what kind of abuse did you get? Like, were you just being yelled at, or were, what, did you, do you fear for yourself at all? You know, we, like, a lot of honking and, and, and yelling from cars, 
because you know it's a very high traffic area oh, okay. there. Like if we had been a bigger presence, then maybe it would have attracted more attention. But uh, basically, <laughs> it was I think, oh, look at those two American idiots, and, <laughs> and so you know, we uh, we ended up safe at least that night. But uh, probably not the smartest thing to have done. I just had to get the details in that story. Let's get to Lori. <laughs> <laughs> Our guest now is Lori Lindsay. She's busy doing all the broadcasts on CBS All Access for the NWSL Challenge Cup, which is entering the quarterfinal stage. Lori played on the 2011 U.S. World Cup team and had a long club career that included time in all three U.S. Division I women's leagues. She's everywhere on the media front these days, is doing the local TV broadcast for Nashville SC and broadcasts of college games and the U.S. Open Cup for various outlets. Lori has even more time on her hands, apparently, so she's also on the U.S. Soccer Board of Directors. Lori, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Grant. <laughs> I don't know how much time I have in my hands at all, actually, but... <laughs> thanks for having time for this for this interview. Um I just want to start, like, I've really enjoyed your broadcast for the NWSL tournament. It's a high-volume gig. Like, how are you able to handle doing this many games in a fairly short time? It is a high-volume gig, for sure. Um, you know, I think the, the interesting thing about it is, is that it's, um, this is the only thing that we're focusing on, right? Because typically, you mentioned I work with Nashville. I've done a lot of stuff with the NWSL, also with ESPN. And so a lot of times you kind of pulled in a lot of different directions. But even though there's a quite a few games, we are calling the games here from Florida from a, um, a studio. And that's all we're focusing on. And for us, with, unfortunately, with Orlando being out, there's only eight teams. So we see a lot of the teams fairly often and they come in quick succession. So it's been, it's been fun to be able to just focus and dive in on, on one league. I don't know if the viewers realize this. You're obviously not in Utah where the tournament's taking place. Where are you and, and why there? Yeah, we are in Fort Lauderdale and we are calling the games um, from a studio called Vista World Links. And in terms of all the production, CBS has the rights. They've done a fabulous job. Um, and we've it was just going to be easier with all the moving parts to keep everyone in Vista who has done a number of NWSL games. They've done a number, they do MLS, um, they have USL. So they had this set up to be able to put this type of production on. And so it was just kind of came down to, I mean, I wasn't involved in those conversations, right? They were just like, get down to Florida. But um, it's, it's worked out and it's been good. And we're social distancing in a studio and calling all the games so with tons of cameras and monitors it's pretty impressive i should do a story once i have a place where i can write again uh on this vista studio because it's kind of this place that the public who are soccer fans don't really know much about and there are a lot of broadcasters who go through there just because there's such a big volume of games like it's a little unusual right now but when you've gone down there before do you like run into other broadcasters down there Oh, all the time. I mean, I was like Tyler Terrence took the um, <laughs> Chicago Fire job, the play-by-play. -play. I mean, I used to stay with him when I was down here. Chris Whittingham, who's always on your show, um, would call games with him. So it's it's almost like um, in like a really positive way, like a broad broadcast boot camp because you like see everybody. You like get all these. You get a lot of reps. You get. Um, a lot of experience with different producers and play-by-play -play or analysts. So it's it's really, it's interesting. And I think it's an potentially 
the way of the future in terms of broadcast if you can't get to the games, right? Or you have a, a high load like we're experiencing with this NWSL Challenge Cup um, to have to put on so many games in, in quick succession. Well, we're going to get to sort of your move into media and how that's worked for you and your story. But for right now, I want to talk about the games we've got ahead here because we're in the knockout rounds now for this NWSL tournament. Uh, Each team has played four games in sort of the preliminary group stage, and now we've got the matchup. So let's start with the first game, Friday, 12.30 p.m. Eastern, North Carolina, the buzzsaw of the NWSL, taking on Portland, (laughs) which is the only team to score against North Carolina in this tournament, even though they're the eight seed, uh, based on the results in the group stage. What's one thing you see standing out in this game? Well, I think both of these teams have had a lot of experience against one another, and they have had experience in a playoff situation. So, you know, even though that Portland finished eighth, they've had some injuries throughout this tournament. They're in kind of a transition period for themselves. But still, I think this is one of the brightest teams that we've seen from Portland in terms of um, you have Morgan Weaver, who was second pick in the draft this year, showing some bright spots. There's a a difference in commitment to defend for this team. And so if there's one team that I feel like could potentially upset North Carolina, I do feel like it's this Portland team, even though it looks like, wait, how, how is that possible with this being that them finishing the eighth? But I don't think anybody thought coming into this tournament, Portland would finish eighth with no wins. The only team that don't have a win in this tournament, but you still have Christine Sinclair, world's greatest goal scorer, Lindsay Horan, one of the best in this tournament so far. So a, a lot of, a lot of depth in a way, and then also a revolving team that I think could surprise North Carolina in some ways. Interesting. So the nightcap on Friday quarterfinal, Houston against Utah. They already played once in this tournament. It was a pretty exciting game. <laughs> yeah, that was that was actually one of the most exciting. 3-3. I mean, we couldn't believe it. We were like, this is amazing because... I think coming into the tournament, a lot of people expected very few goals in the first first half. Um, but no, right off the bat, both of those teams. And I think what's interesting about these two teams is they're really fighting, the, again, two teams that are in transition. Uh, Utah with a new coach. They're playing a 3-5-2, so a new system. Um, missing Kristen Press, who opted out of the tournament, um, one of their obviously big-time goal scorers and big names. Kelly O'Hara just got some first minutes. So a lot of revolving doors there, but have surprised a lot of um, players but or, or teams. But Vero, Amy Rodriguez look like one of the best partnerships in the attack that we've seen in this tournament. They look the fittest I've ever seen, and I've played with both of them. And then Houston, chip on their shoulder, I feel like. They um, came into this tournament like, we want to win. We want to have a different perception about our organization. So I like this matchup. It was fun, as you mentioned, 3-3 the first game. And so I don't know who I give the edge to. I really think it depends on if they can both regroup because it kind of started to lose their way in the last game. They started off pretty high, and then it was just like, let's see what happens here. So I'm going to go with Houston. Not that you're asking for my predictions, but here we are. (laughs) Well, it's it's good stuff. I mean, like, we did see some drop-off just in – Teams look tired in the fourth games. I'm curious to see if that improves with a little bit of time off before these games with much higher stakes, obviously. The game on Saturday uh, to start 12.30 p.m. Eastern, Washington against Sky Blue. Um, Andy Sullivan out, obviously, for Washington. Mm -hmm. How much do you think that's going to hurt them? Who do you like in this game? I think that that's more than 
then they realize that will hurt them. I think she does a lot of the work that goes unnoticed if you're just kind of watching a game. I mean, her defensive positioning, her ability to move off the ball to help keep um, possession, and, and that's the style of play that they want to play. So they do have some younger players that have looked looked pretty quality in this tournament so far. But I think it'll just depend on the pressure of playing in a playoff match, knowing if you don't lose. I mean, if you lose, you go home, right? Or going straight into penalty kicks because we won't have overtime. So there's a different pressure, and I'll be interested to how this young team, the youngest team in the tournament, um, how they can handle that without Andy. At the same time, Sky Blue, I mean, they've probably been one of the biggest surprises. Uh, it looked like the first game that they were going to start off, kind of how they have the past several years, but really possession-oriented, that they seem to have bought into this style of play. And there's some bright spots. Um, I question about where the goals are going to come. So with Roosevelt on the field, I'm going with uh, Washington Spirit. <laughs> then the final quarterfinal is O.L. Reign against Chicago. Um, Chicago finally starting to look more like Chicago as the tournament went on. Yeah, because when, when Orlando um, was un- unable to join the tournament um, due to some of those positive COVID tests, they had to rearrange the schedule. And I think for, for Chicago, it hit them the hardest because they had prepared for a certain amount of time between games, and then they ended up getting the toughest schedule with like the shortest amount. So it was like they didn't get the, the, the best draw there. But at the same time, Rory Dames, their coach, had made it clear that all right, we're going to utilize players. We're going to look through 2021 to see how, where we need to develop. They've obviously lost Sam Kerr, the world's greatest goal scorer, um, who had gone to Europe. So a lot of a lot of rebuilding for them as well. But they are starting to come into themselves, and there's a lot of experience in the NWSL on that team and a core that's been together, and they understand um, what it takes to win playoff games. So. I think with the rise of them in the tournament and their understanding of what it takes to win, Chicago's top of my list there. I guess the big question for for most of us who've been watching this tournament is can anyone beat North Carolina and if it <laughs> were to it, and if it were to happen, how would you see it being done from a tactical and strategic perspective? Well, I think absolutely. I think it always can be in terms of that's the way soccer goes, especially once you get into the knockout rounds. If things don't go your way, I mean, the Achilles heel for, for North Carolina is creating a ton of chances, but not always finishing those. So if you can hold on and get a little bit of luck on your side, if you're the opposition, then absolutely you can knock North Carolina off. I think the thing with North Carolina is their depth, right? And you, it's like they, they might be playing decent, but then they can bring on five players and it's still a level that's not much of a drop off and it's just the competitiveness within their squad is, is the best in this league. Excuse me. But I mean, I think you see holes in their team. If they're, if they're blocked that they play in the midfield, isn't a cohesive unit, they can get pulled out. They can get out of shape. And if you're brave in possession, you, you can beat that. You can beat that if you don't, play into their press and if you find movement early off the ball and find the other side of the field is a, is a way but um, a lot of times teams don't have that early movement and they they fall right into the hands of what North Carolina is trying to do which is press you on one side and then have multiple people in front of the ball so if anybody though I'm still putting my one last thing I'll say if it's anybody then I'm putting it on Portland that they can do it with their midfield interesting well it certainly increases the stakes for this first quarterfinal then i'll be looking forward to that on friday i want to talk about you a little bit Lori Lindsay. um 
for you personally, you played in all three top flight U.S. women's leagues, WUSA, WPS, and the NWSL. <coughs> what was that experience like for you having leagues to play in, but then having them fold and, and eventually restart again? I mean, it was a whirlwind. It was a whirlwind to, I think the main thing is to stay motivated and to not, and stay true to like what I wanted to do in my path and continue, continue to develop as a player because it was easy to, especially between the first leagues, the WSA and the WPS, there was about six years. So and I had gotten called in and out of the national team throughout that time. So it wasn't like I was just home training on my own in my backyard or something. But there was a, there was a lot going on. But to stay motivated and to believe in myself and to play at the next level, I think it was the, the most difficult um, in hopes that there would be another league to come back. Um, but, I mean, honestly, to be able to play in all those leagues and see the development of the women's game throughout all these years has been Exceptional. I mean, the, the product we're seeing um, for the NWSL is such a high level across the board. I've always had this question, but I've actually never asked you. Your nickname has always been Lightning. How did you get that nickname? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, so I, when would it have been? So it was actually when Amy Rodriguez, we played for Paul Riley, who's now the North Carolina Courage coach um, in our old league with the Philadelphia Independence um, with the WPS Women's Professional Soccer. And we would always like for the lineups and for the starting lineups there, we had a, the PA or guy would be like, ah, Amy, A-Rod Rodriguez. And she was the only one that had like the little nickname of A-Rod, right? And it, it was like fine. And we'd all laugh and it was like, he'd get into it. And I'm like, why do you only get the, um, why are you the only one that gets a nickname? Just joke, joking with her. And, but the PA guy caught on to that. And so then it was like a joke. We're going to like name Lori Lightning, right? Because I was, above average speed but I wasn't fast right in the midfield so then it became so then it was like Lori Lightning Lindsay and then it just became one after another and then everyone all my teammates and on the national team thought that was funny because it was like yeah you aren't fast so uh we'll just call you Lightning and then one thing came to another and then it just kept evolving when we do all these behind the scenes shows with the national team and stuff so but it really started with the Philadelphia Independence and <laughs> it's kind of ridiculous and funny to think back on too <laughs> but here we are <laughs> Do your former national team teammates still call you that, or do they call you Lori? Some people will joke it. I've gotten a few messages. One of the best parts about this broadcast at NWSL is because a lot of the players will watch him when they're in the bubble and listen in, right? And so, um, and then like so many former players like have texted and are like loving you on the broadcast. And there's been a few that have been like lightning. <laughs> it's just like it's just it kind of fits and it's hilarious for everybody. So, coaches will call me that. Don Scott, our former. Um, fitness coach and sports scientist for the national team. Yeah, loves it. So she thinks it's the funniest. <laughs> yeah. So I'm curious to know, what, what is your story of how you got into the media world and it just seems like you're everywhere now? Like it's just, and, and you're doing so much. Like how did that transition happen from your playing career to the media stuff? So, well, I have to cre credit um, current uh, general manager for the women's national team, Kate Markgraf, for like pushing me to get involved. And I don't even know if she knows that, but um, at the same time, when I first retired, a lot of my background was kind of in strength and conditioning because I grew up in Indiana, um, kind of got into weightlifting early on. And I credit that to having like the longevity of being able to play in all three leagues, um, staying fairly injury free throughout my career. And I was like, oh, okay, this is what I'm going to get into. Um, that's what I was most excited about after 
playing. And I quickly realized, oh, I don't want to live in a gym. I don't. Um, I love this, but I also don't know if I want this as my career. I mean, I said quickly. It took a couple of years to realize that. And I realized I was also operating in like kind of that 1% that you operate in with the women's national team. It was like, I'm going to be the best strength and conditioning coach, right? And it was just like, okay, let me, let me take a step back and chill out here for a second. And, but I did realize that, okay, this isn't exactly what I want to do. I need a course correct. And had, since I had retired, some of the commentating requests had come my way, but I was dodging those just because I was like, no, I'm going down this path of strength and conditioning. I'm going to stay on this and um, not even like really concern myself with anything else. But then when I realized, hey, you know, I, I think I want to take a different path. Um, this isn't quite what I want to do. I, um, Kate Markgraf had still been like, hey, you should get into this. You should get into this. And so I was like, reached out to a few people in terms of that had contacted me previously. And I was like, this is what I want to do. I would love to get some reps and got my chance and did some college soccer and like loved it. And it so feels like playing. It's like the preparation with talking with coaches leading up to the game days and those being live. And so, and then one thing just led to another and I've just said yes to a lot of things and met some wonderful people or reconnected with people and that I'd known from my playing days. And it's been awesome. It's such a craft in a way that I don't think people understand. And it's been fun to develop and learn as I go. How do you approach sort of the way you want to call a game? The, the, like what you're trying to communicate uh, when you're on a broadcast? Uh, I think two, two words always come to mind and are like educate and entertain. Because I, I think there is still a level of like education and a different way as a player, especially as a midfielder that I saw the game that aren't, if you're just watching it as a fan, you might not typically pick up on or why teams need to do a certain thing or why I believe other players can get involved in a different way and the impact that they can have. But also, like, regardless if it's, it's a zero-zero tie or not, I think I love the game. And I think it's, it can be so exciting if you're looking for different things. So to make sure that that comes out in terms of the experience, like a felt experience of like, yes, this is awesome, but also within that having the education. Um, because that's how I was as a player. Like I wasn't, I was just, it was like about rhythm, right? About energy and rhythm and finding gaps and ways to play. So that's how I appreciate and try to call the game. So you're doing Nashville SE local broadcasts on, on their television there whenever that gets going again, hopefully before too long. <laughs> um, you're, you're calling college games, hopefully again before that gets going before too long. Uh, I mean, in a non-virus world, how many games a year would you be doing? Great question. Probably somewhere between... 75 and 100 games, I would say. It's quite yeah. a few, depending with a whole bunch of other stuff. Yeah. If you talk about the MLS season, you throw in NWSL, you throw in college, and then other stuff like the ICC, ICC championship for the women. Like, there's just like a lot of other stuff. You include the draft, different studio work. So, yeah, it's, it's quite a bit, but I like it because it allows you to be able to work with various commentators and you learn from, ev you learn from everyone. So, I've, I've really enjoyed it. So I want to talk about U.S. soccer and you're being on the board of directors. Um, that's a completely separate thing from the media side. Unlike the media side, you're not getting paid uh, for this, but, <laughs> uh, but you certainly put in a lot of time for it. 
How did you end up on the U.S. Soccer Board of Directors? So Anne Chukli was uh, was our one of our athlete representatives on the board prior to me, and there's we're all on the athlete council, or Ange was, but she's timed out now. So there's about twenty of us, or there are twenty of us on the athlete council, and then we have three um, from athletes on the board from the athlete council. And so whenever you time out or it's time to step down, then we bring somebody else in, and that's what happened with Anne Chukli's. And it's a time commitment, so it's tough to always get somebody to say yes to that um, because, as you mentioned, it's a volunteer position. Um, So basically, Chris Ahrens, who's kind of the head of our athlete council, was like, hey, Lori, you're you're involved, you're you're active within the council, would you want to take over Angie's spot? And and I, I sat on it for a while because I wasn't quite sure that that is the route that I wanted to go, but then wanting to at least have a a female representation on the board, I eventually said, said yes. So that's kind of how it happened and nothing exciting really. (laughs) Um, And here I am. It's just been a little bit over a year and whirlwind to say the least. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, it strikes me that there's, in my opinion, more power than ever for the athletes inside U.S. soccer and on the board of directors. In 2018, the Athletes Council swung the election. Uh, Now Cindy Parlow-Cohn is president after a lot of upheaval earlier in the year. (laughs) Um, But do you get the sense that that there is more of a voice for, for current and former athletes than before? 100%. And I think that's exactly right. There is more of a voice. There's more, I mean, I don't really want to say the word power, but in a a collective, right? There's a more of um, a collective voice from the athletes. And I think that's, you see that right now with what's happening in our world and you see voices being amplified and players um, feeling comfortable to speak out. And I think that's true within the board and on our athlete council as well. And I mean, I feel that for myself, even with, as you mentioned, what's been going on this year and um, speaking up and actually the responsibility to speak up even more in terms of using my voice on the um, on the board. So I think we'll just continue that. We'll see that being continued as as we go forward. We saw U.S. soccer repeal the rule preventing peaceful protests during the national anthem. And just from my perspective, I thought the apology that came out of U.S. soccer was handled really well. What was your perspective on seeing how all that happened on the inside as as the board went about that process? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's when, for me, it was really like it became clear on how I can use my voice even more within all of it, because I think the one thing that's interesting about the board is that there are so many subcommittees, there's so many different people on the board in terms of who they represent within U.S. soccer and how big U.S. soccer is. So people are being pulled in so many different ways with so many agendas and things that are important to them. And and that's what makes this board interesting is because people, their focus is is different, right? And so they're trying to be the voice of these different pockets, again, like I said, within U.S. soccer. But you know, there's differencing of differencing of opinions when it came to the repeal. And for me, it was, I mean, it's no, it's no secret that Megan Rapino and I are, are great friends and have been for a really long time. And when she first kneeled, like she was staying at my house when all of this stuff happened. Right. So, um, it, for me, I felt very, 
uh, strongly about this being repealed. And it just became clear in terms of all the different opinions about it that for me to speak up and um, say my piece and what was important. And then to see that, un- I'm using the word unravel, but that's not just how it developed. And Cindy Parlow Cohn speaking up and how she could use um, her understanding as an athlete. So I think we're really starting to see people step up have different points of view that haven't spoken out previously. And I agree with you. I think that the the statement that was put out and the apology was spot on and one of the better ones that we've seen from organizations um, thoroughly. But I think the next step is now action. We have to really start to put some things into place. Um, the apology is acknowledged. Um, where we're going from here is is another story and that's yet to be seen. But I, I know there's stuff going on behind the scenes that hopefully are moving in the right direction. I mean, I knew you were close to Megan Rapinoe. I didn't realize she was staying at your place during part of that stretch. Like, I, my sense is it's been written about a little bit about Megan in some stories, but I, I still feel like it's underplayed a little bit how how relatively alone she was on an island during that time and just the amount of of difficult things she went through um it was pretty bad wasn't it oh really bad yeah and i think and you know and and i don't want to speak for megan because obviously she can tell the story but from from being around her being close friends with her um it's it was very alone in the fact that like just now are people actually hearing and believing why Colin Kaepernick was kneeling, right? And why Megan was um, kneeling in solidarity with Colin as well. And it wasn't about the flag, right? But like, I think one of the really lonely parts about it all is just the the hate that was coming out with not even trying to listen to what the message was and to just attacking Megan as a person as well. And um, obviously Colin would have been, is, is not even playing football. So I don't want to make this like, Megan understands her privilege within all of this as well. And she's been spoken, she's been outspoken about that. Um, but at the same time, yeah, I mean, when, if we're just speaking about Megan and the loneliness as a white athlete who was kneeling in solidarity, yeah, the tax on who you are as a human and not even about like the message um, were, for lack of a better word, it was a, very much the wild, wild west on the internet and scary to some parts, right? So, yeah. and, and U.S. soccer, obviously, to be frank, weren't helpful in that situation. I mean, we didn't see Megan get called in for a number of months, right, as, as an athlete. So, and then the repeal, I mean, to, to put up, have this um, ban against kneeling, right, without even, like, talking with Megan. So, I mean, there's a lot of things that you would have thought would have helped, been helpful in all of this to be able to support athletes. And, in fact, it went the other direction until as of late, really. Yeah, no, totally. Um just from following you on your social media, it's pretty clear that the Black Lives Matter movement and the protests have impacted you a lot. How would you describe that? And what do you want to see white people do more of in our soccer community? For me, it's um, about being educated. It's about listening. It's about believing. It's about amplifying voices in a way um, that we haven't before. And also just look at the way that I have carried myself as well, right? In terms of not speaking out, not speaking up in terms, times that needed to be, um, that were important. And just taking a step back and, and, and not being quiet in the fact that like, 
yes, it's time, it's a time to listen, but it's also a time to speak up in the moments in, in locker rooms when there's little microaggressions or somebody saying something because rightfully so black people are tired. They're tired of the ones beings have to do the, the speaking. And so I think it's really important for white athletes to listen. And that's when we take a step back, but also stand up and start to play more of an integral role in what's happening right now. And I think there's one thing that I really love that you said in terms of media, because obviously I'm um, right in the mix of all of that. It's like we are the fir- when when something like Black Lives Matter movement happens, we're the first to go and talk. Let's OK, let's talk to the black athletes. It's like, well, why aren't we talking to the white athletes first and saying, what are you doing to make this environment better or um, what are we doing? And to hold ourselves responsible, I think, really is is the key moving forward in, in all, spe- all spe- aspects in terms of how we're speaking about athletes, how we are amplifying them or not. And that's that's really where I feel the most um, I can have the most impact right now. I know you're not in Utah, but you're certainly following very closely what's happening at the tournament in Utah. How have you seen white players in the NWSL handle this and approach this during this tournament so far? From my understanding and from what I'm seeing and, and hearing is in a really positive a positive way. I think, you know, you have to give credit to the Players Association and the league, Lisa Baird, our new commissioner coming in. Um, it's, from my understanding, there had been some excellent conversations and, and when I say excellent, important conversations that have come out of this in terms of Lisa really listening to the Players Association, the players, what they want, what they wanted coming into this tournament um, in terms of being able to use their voice and then collectively I think this is the, we've seen an excellent product on the field, but from internally what I'm hearing is that there's the most growth has been between the players on the teams, the coaching staff, the the conversations that continue to happen. I mean, we're three weeks in almost that are, that are constantly happening on whether or not that's just listening, but the growth amongst the players and the teams and the conversations that haven't had, I think is what has been the biggest. And, and it sounds like it's been positive in terms of white athletes and the white players um, listening and trying to understand. And, um, but also, um, again, taking a step back when, it, when it's been needed to say, hey, these are, this is who I'm going to listen to and going forward. We're winding down here with Lori Lindsay. Uh, one other question about U.S. soccer and being inside that. You and Cindy Parlo-Cone are obviously former women's national team players. There's still a lawsuit going on from the women's <laughs> national team against U.S. soccer. How do you balance that, all of that, given the position that you're in? Oh, my goodness. It's it's so tough, right? I mean, obviously, this isn't I, – I stand – uh, let me let me take that back. Like I need to say, stand. But I'm in support of the women's team wholeheartedly. I mean, I've, I grew up with that team. The players that have come before me that are the reason why we are able to have the platform as a national team. The players that are currently on the the team um, is because of the players before. So for all the stuff that has happened, um, it has been hard because I do not support any of that. Right in terms of what has gone on. Um, and it, it's been it's been difficult, but also um, I believe in U.S. soccer. I believe that we can 
we can continue to grow as an organization. We have a lot of room for improvement and to be a better representation of what U.S. soccer looks like. And so it's, it is a balance of like, okay, I believe and I'm behind the women's team 100%. And, um, but also I'm on the board because it's an important voice to have on the board as a former athlete on the women's team. And to say, hey, this is, this is not what I stand for. Or this is what um, I believe in. And to kind of goes back to what I was saying before is to realize, okay, hey, this is where I can be the most effective within th- this group of people to help change. And so that's what I, that's what I continue to, l- allows me to have that balance, I think, because it's like, okay, here's a way that we can, as a person that's on the inside, to be able to, again, I guess it goes back to affecting change in a positive way. Last question for you. Where do you want to be like in five years on all this media stuff? Are you still planning on doing like so many leagues and, and <laughs> games or, or do you want to focus? What, what do you want to be doing? Well, I, I love this question because I think if we would have asked ourselves that five years ago, no, none of us would have been like, oh, we're going to be in the middle of a <laughs> pandemic, right? <laughs> and also in the yes. in the middle of the biggest civil rights uprising this country's ever seen. So it's kind of like, uh, well, I don't know where I'm going to be in five years. But at the same time, um, I, I just want to do good work. I think this, I, I, the reason why I love commentating is because it, it is so much like playing, as I had kind of briefly, briefly touched on. I mean, just to be able to be around the players, to, to be around the coaches, to educate fans in a way that's like, okay, this game is fun, this is what to look for, this is the inside of the players' uh, minds, essentially, and it is a craft. And I, again, I don't think people really understand that so much goes on behind the scenes that no one even knows about. I mean, there's people in your ear during the game, it's live, you're feeling that, there's nerves, there's excitement. And so there's so much growth, but I mainly I want to continue to grow just like I did as a player and kind of find a unique space of my personality that a lot of my friends and former teammates know, but also a seriousness because I, t- I do take it seriously in what these players and everyone's going through, um, but a fine balance. And then in terms of like what that looks like, I don't know. I mean, I of course want to call the World Cup Olympics. I would love to do the European Championships on the women. I love the men's game. I think it's um, we're seeing more women commentators and um, you know, crossover in that way that I would love to continue to get involved in more and just say yes to the opportunities because the people I've met along the way have been like, I'm sitting here talking to you in the middle of a Wednesday, right? This is amazing. Or whenever this is coming out, you can scratch that, <laughs> but like, it's amazing, right? The people you get to meet. And so, and then there's really last thing I'll say about that is I think there's a lot of, even though it looks like we're just calling soccer games, there's so much impact that we can have on soccer and sport in general um, especially with the current times that we're having. And I, and I feel a, res- a real responsibility for that, which I'm, I honor and ex- am excited about. Well, know that the feeling is mutual, Lori. And uh, just want to let everyone know, once again, Lori Lindsay will be calling the NWSL Challenge Cup quarterfinals and semifinals starting on Friday, 12.30 p.m. Eastern on CBS All Access. Lori, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Grant. You're the best. This is awesome. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. 
If you like the podcast, you could do me a huge favor and hit that subscribe button and provide a rating and a review. I can't tell you how much that helps. I'd like to thank Lori Lindsay, as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. I also want to thank Taylor Rockwell and Daryl Grove of The Total Soccer Show for everything they've done to help get this show off the ground. I'm back soon with another interview of someone from the soccer world. Be safe, everyone. See you next time. Thank you.